Thank you very much for all the questions that have come in. We've been <laughs> swamped, by, <laughs> swamped by them. So what I've tried to do is to collate and group them into some areas. Um, I, I'm sure when, when not, I'm sorry, we'll be able to get through all the questions. Um, but uh, as I say, we've tried to summarize some of the similar questions into a, a more general question. Okay, so, uh, so here goes. And I mean, if we do get through these ones, then I'm sure that uh, Arch would be happy to take some from the floor. Uh, the first one was to do with uh, teenagers. Um, <coughs> how would you spot... Pests. Sorry? Pests. Pests. <laughs> oh. How, how would you spot teen depression and how to distinguish it, the depression, from normal teenage non-communication and hormones? How, how, do, how do we then make a connection with them? Uh, good. That, it, it's right that there is a, a transition period in the teen years that can be disrupted. There's profound hormonal changes are taking place. And we now know that the human brain is still not fully settled before about age 24. And until then, has very, doesn't have the connections yet developed in the brain to make moral decisions. So it, it, it really does you know, you know, highlight for us that until about age 24, there is a, there's a lack of adequate brain power to do the right sort of things, which, which should help us be a little bit more um, considerate. Because the, the, the typical parent expects the teenager at age 15 or 16 to act like an adult, to think like an adult, to take responsibility like an adult. I mean, that's the expectation, and that invariably only intensifies the conflict between parent and teenager that, that is disrupted. So, the human brain does not develop before early adulthood, not out beyond the teen years. <clears throat> uh, how do you spot depression in teenagers? Let me first make a few comments about how to spot it in children, and then I'll expand it. Because, it's, because you need to be alerting to it in, in the childhood years. The, 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 the dominant symptom in childhood depression is anhedonia. The child cannot take pleasure in anything. When you see a child, it cannot enjoy anything. Used to be able to, now doesn't. Then that's the red flag. I've done a lot of research in this area. And a, the typical depressed child from about age seven doesn't have the language to describe it. So don't, there's no point in asking questions to, to elicit explanation or an understanding of depression because they don't have the language for it. But what they do is they, uh, there's, there's no smile. And when something that normally would give a child pleasure is there and they do not respond with pleasure, you've got depression. I developed a, a test where we can show a child various pictures. Sundry pictures. They standardized and uh, some of them, a picture of a broom, of course, 
child doesn't smile, you know, what is it, it's the broom. Uh, show them an ice cream cone, and some children will begin to smile. But show them a picture of a puppy wearing a tie, <laughs> head cocked to one side. See the smile? On the child. But, you know, I, when, I, when, I, uh, when I explain this, I'm, I'm scanning the audience to see who hasn't smiled. <laughs> and would you believe it? That simple test differentiates depressed children from normal children 100%. Anhedonia, it, it, uh, uh, children show the drop in pleasure much more obviously than an adult does because adults have found other ways to get some pleasure so that they will find something that can give them a little bit of pleasure. But children don't have that skill. So they, it's so very obvious. So in, in the laboratory when we were doing this research, we used electrodes on the face with electromyograms, very sensitive amplifiers of muscle signals. So we could tell a smile reflex way before you can see it. So I know when a child is starting to smile. And we, we show these different pictures. Also, there's a picture, one of the pictures is three little babies all sort of dressed up with funny hats. And, you know, the, the children smile, usually. They may, it, it, not a big one, but that puppy with the tie produces the greatest smile in a child when they see it. But now the depressed child doesn't smile, frowns. So the, so the, the electrodes here that measure the frown go up. Frowns. Because the child cannot understand the humor. Doesn't get it. Mommy, why is that puppy wearing a tie? A normal child smiles and laughs. Gets the, gets the humor in it. The child is, is not just not getting pleasure. Just can't see the humor in it. And as the mother and child leave the lab... Walking down the passage, you hear the child persisting. Mommy, this is long after they've seen other pictures. Why was that puppy wearing a tie? Now, so anhedonia is, is the important symptom of children. Now, teenagers, we, we, we also have the anhedonic response. A teenager is pulling away, withdrawing, etc. Now, but trouble is that hormones can do some of that as well. Where depression begins to manifest itself in the teen years is that it takes on more of the male depression phenomenon. Hostility, anger, irritability, and, 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 and outbursts. Now, how do you tell the difference between that and a, a, a normal sort of teen rebellion the problem is that it is a sort of depressive thing that causes that rebellion anyway. That's the problem. That those hormonal changes at that point are disrupting the anhedonia, the ability to control your feelings. And so it is extremely difficult to, to separate from one from the other. And so my advice usually is to, to adopt a wait and see for a little bit. Because the difference between the two is where it's hormonal and stuff, that does a turn and gets better. Whereas in the depression, it doesn't get better. It, it, it gets worse. Between age of about 13 and 15, 
the only way you can accurately diagnose a teenage depression is diagnosis by trial medication. Try an antidepressant, see if it works. Reluctant to do that in those ages, uh, and so if it's possible, if, if the parents can afford it, uh, some, some CBT, teenage level CBT, help them manage their hostility, manage their anger. But by the age of 16, if that hostility increases, you've got clinical depression, you need to, to move on that. And that's true for males and females. They, that hostility, that irritability factor, uh, low tolerance, together with the anhedonia, can't enjoy anything, is, is, the, is a sign that you need to consider depression. Um, second one, uh, I've been signed off work by my doctor for stress, stress in inverted commas. Um, what should I do during this time to aid recovery? Maybe it's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's a good question, and, and the answer is, uh, uh, you know, is that you, if you've got a stress problem, the challenge is how do you manage that adrenaline? And so you've got to increase the recovery. You've got to give more time to recovery. Now, this is a good time to, for example, take up a hobby. Get some distractions going. If you don't have a hobby, now's the time to take up a hobby. Um, I... I, I uh, a situation like this, you know, I, 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 was, I'm working with a, with a, with a patient, I, I, I want to see, I ask the question, what have you always wanted to do? And I've always wanted to learn how to, to fly fish. You know what fly fishing is. Always wanted to do that. Never had a chance. Now's your chance. So, you know, uh, you can buy used second-hand fly rods and reels. You don't have to spend a lot of money on it. And you don't learn how to, to, to cast that thing. And, and uh, so I, I call it... Um, uh, faceting, like a diamond is brilliant because you've sharpened these little windows, polished these windows. I, I have many hobbies. One of them is faceting. One of them is goldsmithing. I, may, I love to work with gold. But, but I, I built my own faceting machine and I can facet amethyst. And You take this chunk of ugly glass or pink looking stuff and you, and you polish these faces and brilliance comes. And I, I think that... <coughs> uh, these interests can distract, you know. You take up fly fishing, I can tell you, do that for several hours, your adrenaline's going to be very long. <laughs> Don't actually try to catch a fish, though, because that, <laughs> <laughs> that's where the frustration factor comes back. <laughs> and uh, sport, uh, increase your exercise. Get, get, get on an exercise program. If the doctor has given you that opportunity, do that. Then do, learn relaxation. Do, do, do uh, 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 both physical. You see, we need physical activity and relaxation. Exercise is good for everything. Except, do not think that golf is exercise. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with golf is it's such a difficult game to master that, you, you, know, that you know, those cartoons with broken <laughs> golf sticks are not the cartoons for no reason. The frustration of... Stay away from sport that is um, frustrating. Just go and ride your bicycle. I mean, you can't get too many things wrong just riding a bicycle. Um, 
It, it's those sort of things that you should give your attention. And, and if necessary, get some, get some counseling that can help you get back on the road. Uh, is the increasing occurrence uh, of conditions like ME also related to living outside the box? Why can ME persist in some f for such a long time? Can someone tell me what ME is? What's that? Yeah, chronic, fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is a big mystery. Um, about one-third of people who suffer from chronic fatigue syndromes are actually clinically depressed. And so the, 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 you fight, you, what you do is get, get treatment for, uh, for that because the, the fatigue is the drop in energy component in the depression symptom. The other two-thirds are, are a bit of a mystery. There's not a lot of uh, clarity here. Not that I'm on. We have several physicians here, so I invite them to please contribute, Rick, if they, if they, if they have anything to, to, to add to that. I'm, this is not an area of expertise of mine. But, but I, I, I do know this, that stress aggravates it. Stress does make it worse. So my only... Uh, uh, input here would be to say that until you can find out exactly what it is, A, make sure you explore the depression avenue, make sure that isn't the issue, and if necessary, try an antidepressant, an SSRI particularly, for a while and see if that helps. Uh, the second thing is to work hard at your stress management. Get that down. Make that a high, high priority. In fact, you might want to take it a step further, and here I, I, I need some feedback from you. How common is, uh, is biofeedback here? Is it available in hospitals, in treatment centers? The what, is, is biofeedback? No? Biofeedback is a sort of use of physiological instruments to facilitate learning how to relax. Since people who suffer from uh, headaches, front, this is muscle contraction headaches, usually it's these muscles, the frontalis muscles above the eyes or the two behind the, on the neck called the occipitalis muscles. When you get a headache and you have to massage those two bumps at the back there, that's, that's the muscles there that are headache. For some reason, those muscles really don't do a lot of purpose. They're not other than just lubricating the scalp. But they carry the burden of pain when it comes to stress. <clears throat> and so, you know, I'm one of the founders of that movement. And uh, we've been for 30, 30 years now treating those disorders by using specially designed electromyograms. I had, I ran, had a company that manufactured them for a while. Uh, you put electrodes on these muscles and you have a needle that goes up and down on how much tension there is and a little sound that can go up. If you relax, the sound goes down. If you tense. And with that, this biological feedback, with that feedback, you quickly learn how to relax those muscles. Some, sometimes the tension is in the back or legs. Also use uh, uh, called thermal training or skin temperature training. I... 
Uh, you know, I have a little instrument in my bag. I might even just hook it up this afternoon and show you one of these. But uh, where you, you, uh, whenever your adrenaline goes up, your hand temperature drops. Do you know that? Whenever you, so if you want to monitor, if you want to check how stressed you are right now, put your hand on your face. And if your hand feels colder than your face, you're sitting there stressed out. I'm, what I'm saying is stressing you out. <laughs> People who have chronic cold hands. Now, there are disorders that cause that. It's a disorder called Raynaud's disease. Uh, but, but the, and there's some people, uh, women tend to be cold hands more than men. But the point is that you can learn to warm your hands. And in order to warm your hands, you've got to turn off your adrenaline. Because when adrenaline goes up, the hand, the blood is withdrawn from the hands and feet. It's called peripheral vasoconstriction. These blood vessels become constricted and the temperature drops. And we use instruments that measures us to a hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit. You just think a thought and you can, I can see on the, my instrument, I can see your, your skin temperature changing. And so we provide feedback and we teach people how to warm their hands. Or it's another one called skin conductance. We put an instrument that measures the slightest change in sweat in, in the palms of your hand. Because adrenaline, the emergency response, the first thing you do is secrete a little sweat because you've got to fight or flee. You've got to use your hands. You've got to pick up something and beat that line. You know, you've got to, or your feet may have to drip better. Now, the trouble is we wear shoes all the time, so we don't even notice that on our feet. But biological feedback is a powerful tool scientifically based, that monitors important physiological reactions that come with stress and provides you with a direct way. Most people, if you ask them, are you tense or relaxed, could not tell you accurately whether they are tense or not. But if I measure your, your, your muscle tension, I know exactly when you are tense. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. But those of you who are counselors, you might want to consider... Uh, there are training programs on the internet. There's not, it's there, you don't have to be a neuroscientist to do this, okay? You need a little bit of learning theory. You need to know how, uh, and you can buy these instruments fairly cheaply, and they're designed to be quite fu foolproof. And there are programs on the internet that can train you in these areas. In the United States, we actually certify biofeedback psychologists or nurses or social workers or counselors who want to, in this area, we, we, we have a certification program there. I happen to be started that. I'm, I'm, I was grandfathered into all this stuff. And I, 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 in, in the United States, I don't think we could survive, quite frankly, without the, these tools. And chronic fatigue syndrome uh, is a classic tool that you, ne you need to now stop just guessing and use a tool like that to train you in your lowering of your stress. Well, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I was not aware that this is not a highly developed skill. Yeah. But it's a chance for you to get out there. <laughs> uh, the vineyard as a, um, as a church planting movement typically attracts type A leaders mm -hmm. who will be overactive. Uh -huh. Does this not set ourselves up for reactive depression? If 
If so, what might we do to minimize it? Yeah, not only reactive depression, but I, can I go down the list, you know, ulcers. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's typical. Uh, uh, type A personalities dominate in the leadership field generally. Now, that doesn't mean to say type B can't be a leader, but type Bs usually are a little bit more sane and... Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, our Western culture is such that the drivenness of type A-ness is what builds for success. And that's, that's sad. That's sad. Um, the, I don't know where to go with that because I wouldn't want to tell every type A to stay out of ministry. Or, or, or type B, for that matter. Uh, what, what I would recommend is uh, we, type A's need to be more intentional. We need to be a little smarter and educate those we are recruiting in uh, in, in, in the hazards that we bring from our personality and, and body in, into the ministry. And, and I, I think the solution here is to be what you, we are doing in this conference. You know, I, I, I applaud the Vineyard Movement for doing this because there are not a lot of denominations. I, I have great difficulty getting... Well, I'm very well-known in the Baptist circles there. I do get into Southern Baptists, but I, that, that as a denomination, they are very resistant to this sort of thing. Um, and I, I have been pleasantly surprised I was expecting to be raked over the coals, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting a lot of resistance. I was expecting at least 25% of you, oh, come on, get off that, you know, let's... Uh, and and I, I haven't sensed that. Those of you who probably don't like what I've been saying have kept your mouth shut, and I appreciate that. Uh, collect your free book at the back as you leave. But... But, Rick, I, I think you, as a denomination, you, you are open to this sort of thing. You're open to what I... When, when I tell you you're to live with it inside the box, I don't sense a opposition to that. So, <laughs> you are sane after all. <laughs> Good. Um, here we go. Actually, a slight bit of, bit of a, different, a shift here. What, what, would you, what, what would your counsel be to the person who is feeling that God has not answered prayer, and then oh. that, that is grieving a loss that they perceive God hasn't answered. So they, if I understand correctly, they prayed for God to get them over this loss. Yes, I think, I think that's the meaning. If I, let me assume that's the yeah. meaning. Because yeah. that that's a common issue. I mean, that's yeah. not uncommon. Yeah. Sure. To, to, you know, the pain, I want to, Lord, just put the pain of this behind me. You know, it's painful enough, and the grieving just goes on and on, and I need to do something about it. Now, well, that is typically seen as a, um, as a sort of a spiral effect in, 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 in depression. In other words, the depression is feeding off itself. The, the, the loss you've suffered is perpetuating the loss. Uh, uh, so that your, your grieving gets trapped into a cycle that, that, that you can't break out of. You can't break out of. Um, this, this spiral can, in fact, begin to, to turn into a, uh, a, a bad spiral that will take you down more and more and more. 
What happens is the loss you've experienced then creates secondary losses. Um, often you might feel guilty. Well, a good example would be parents of a teenager who's committed suicide often will get into the spiral. We should have been better parents. I should have been a better mother. Uh, I should have been a better wife. And, and we get trapped into the spiral and one of the secondary losses is being created by our guilt. Does that make sense? Because now that I'm feeling guilty about this, the guilt is feeding another whole bunch of losses into the system. And so the original loss becomes expanded and perpetuated. And breaking that cycle, you know, uh, quite frankly, I don't know how you can do it without getting into some good counseling. Because what you've got to do is you really have to try and discover what are the secondary losses now. It's no longer the primary loss that's the problem. You are creating secondary losses. What is it? Um, often, often, it, it, is, it is a high level of neurotic guilt that is feeding it. You, you're taking some responsibility for it. You're blaming yourself for it. Now, you may not be doing it consciously, but it's, that's, that's the dynamic of what is going on there. So, th this gives me an opportunity just to say a word about neurotic guilt, because we've not been on the topic. So, let, let me add to it. So, so my, my advice is, look, you, you need to be externalizing. You need to be sitting down talking about it and trying to discover what your secondary losses are. What are the other losses that are unconsciously being created? I, I, I take parents of suicidal, suicidal kids. Um, I, I, I had a case once of a, of a, of a client where the, the teenage daughter, the mother came to England on a visit. And while she was flying here, the teenage daughter, who was very angry at her father, was working for her father, went home, fetched a pistol, a revolver, came back. As she walked into her father's office, he saw her gun. He got up to run out, and as he turned his back to go out the back door, she put a bullet right through him and then raised the gun to her head and shot herself. Dead father, dead daughter. Mother arrives at Heathrow. There's an announcement. Well, please, Mrs. So-and-so, please come to the nearest telephone. And it's her son. Mom, get on the next plane and come back again. Well, what's happened? What's happened? Don't, Mom, I'm, don't, just, just get on the next plane. And gets home. Now, can you imagine how, that, how hard it is to get over that grief? And, and, and my strategy was, you know, what are you blaming yourself for here? And this is where cognitive therapy can be helpful because you challenge these distorted beliefs. And thinking. All right, but neurotic guilt. Neuro neurotic guilt. By definition, neurotic guilt is the guilt that will not receive forgiveness. It will not receive forgiveness. It, it demands punishment. It demands punishment. Therefore, I perpetuate my pain because it's a form of self punishment. So in the counseling process, you need to get at that neurotic guilt. I am personally, I suffer from a high level of neurotic guilt. Neurotic guilt is not true guilt because I have not done anything to justify the guilt feeling. I just feel it because I take responsibility. Uh, that's in my book, un, un, uh, 
unlocking the mystery of your emotions. Neurotic guilt uh, can be a killer. And the, the, the problem with that neurotic guilt is when you come to Christ and God offers you his forgiveness, you just can't get it. And so all through your life you are obsessed by, for example, having committed the unpardonable sin. And just can't get beyond it. But often just helping a person understand it. You know, guilt, you should treat that guilt. True guilt, you've got forgiveness for it, folks. False guilt or neurotic guilt, you treat it like you treat that stuff the horse drops on the road. And I can use this metaphor here because in England you've got the Queen's horses and you've got horse parades and all a lot here. I never see those there. And those horses tend to drop stuff, you know. And when I'm walking along, what do I do when I get to that stuff? I step over it. In other words, you have to learn to ignore that guilt and go on as if, you know. So neurotic guilt is a, is a, is a very important issue. Thanks. Um, could you say a little more about the role of spirituality and mind renewal in personal change and thriving? Yes, I, that, that is a very, very good, good question because I would go so far as to say that, that our spirituality is absolutely crucial and essential to shaping our mind. You know, Romans 12.3 the renewing of the mind. I, you know what? I, I, I come from a holiness background, so I, I had steeped in me early in my life the importance of sanctification. Now, holiness groups in the States, I don't know if there's much of that around here, Nazarene Church and others are very big on holiness. Holiness as a gift, like in Pentecostal circles, the the gift of the Holy Spirit is a gifting you receive. And so in holiness circles, the, the holiness is a gift you receive. And then you work it out in your life. Um, but but tied to that, I, I, I have strong feeling that my spirituality is partly a worship thing. But not totally a worship thing. It is also a sanctifying thing. So I think that in, spiritual, in my spiritual disciplines, in my shaping of my spirituality, I, there are two things there that are being shaped. One is my worship of God. That's why we give attention to that. There is some, there's a sanctifying gift that comes to us in our worship of God. As I worship God, I am actually shaping my values. Think about it. When I praise God for his love, I am telling my brain, love is important. You've got to love others also. So I'm, I'm shaping my spirituality. Uh, my, my spirituality is actually, my worship is shaping my values. It's shaping my behavior. Because when I worship God, and, I, and I, 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 I come back to reality, and I go through the lounge uh, uh, you know, and, and see my wife there, I, I hopefully bring some of that 
to that encounter. That be- my worship invades every aspect of my being, how I treat my students. So there is that worship connection that, that, that is half of, I, I want to put, don't want to put proportions here, but it's part of our spirituality. But the other part, and the one that is most commonly neglected, is the sanctification process. Whether you buy into the doctrine of sanctification, that it is purely a gift, which I have now moved beyond, and for me, sanctification is a process. I am being transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, day by day, day by day, just a little bit bit more like, a little more holy. I, I, I used to shy away from saying holy, but I don't do that now. I, I want to be holy. I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. I crave it. And my spirituality, that, it's, it's, my, it's a sanctification thing. It's not all worship. I think that's a little, that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, it's not what I'm giving to God, it's what now God gives back to me. And in order to shape my sanctification, I have to take some responsibility. I have to be willing to change. I have to. We, we used to sing a chorus years ago, uh, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Do they still sing that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and, 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 I, and so my spirituality has to be the searching process where a process of self-discovery. Do you know what? In the final analysis, it's what psychologists and counselors do anyway. That, what, that is all about. It's all about self-discovery. And, and spirituality, therefore, has a very important role to play, I think, in shaping my mental health as well as my spiritual health. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that, that women are more likely to self-harm than men. Isn't this a form of acting <coughs> out depression rather than feeling it? Good question. No, it isn't. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> you tell me to just say no. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy. Do you want me to go? No, but it's a good question. You know, it's a good question. It, 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 it pulls out a very important issue. Um, self-harm. Uh, cutting is epidemic in the United States. Every school. Has an, has an epidemic of kids who... You know what cutting is, huh? Mm-hmm. Some of the guys looking at me, huh? <laughs> um, where you take a razor blade or a sharp knife and you cut yourself. You inflict pain. Self-mutilation. You could put something through your ear or through your lip or, <laughs> or other places. Uh, that might be a... F- I'm, not, I'm, I'm joking now, but that might be a form of pain as well. But... <clears throat> the, 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 uh, this is addressed in my, in my book, Stressed or Depressed. We, we have a chapter on the self-inflicted uh, pain and, and particularly the cutting phenomenon, which is now... So, so teenagers in the States all wear long sleeves. If, you, if you're a teenager on a hot day is wearing a long sleeve sweater or shirt, you know he or she is into cutting. Used to be girls mainly. Boys are doing it now also. That... Self-infliction of pain is better understood 
something I'll be talking about this afternoon, in, in, in the anhedonia phenomenon, the inability to experience pleasure. The, the, the pleasure center of the brain, called the locus accumbens, is right next to the pain center. So when you send pain to the brain, you are actually... The overflow goes to the pleasure center. This is another way of saying, in some strange way, pain gives the brain pleasure. We see this in sadomasochism, in, in sex. Inflicting pain while you're having sex enhances the pleasure of that sex. So I, I think that the, that the uh, self-inflicted pain is much better understood if you see it as an anhedonia problem. And I, I get confirmation of this from my, my granddaughters, who are very open and upfront with me, who tell me, and, and my one granddaughter the other day, and we were talking about it, she said to me, Papa, Papa, you have no idea how numb many of us feel. We feel numb. We, 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 we wonder whether we are normal. Because we can't feel. I can't feel any excitement. No, my, my, my kids do not cut, but all their friends do. They're just telling me what, what is the teenage experience. I, 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 we, 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 begin to, we begin to worry about whether we're normal or not. And you know, one day you accidentally hurt yourself and you feel some pain. You say, I, you know, I can feel some pain. So you do it again. And for many of them, it is a sort of a, a reassuring thing. And in some strange way, it's a, it, it, it's, it becomes addicting because it actually does send... A, one of the pathways to the pleasure center is triggered by this process. So I, I tend to... So, so therefore, you see, the, the cutting acting out is not the same as the anger of the male. It, it, it's a behavior, but it's actually a behavior that's tied to the anhedonia, not to the irritability anger problem. Okay? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and then um, one on male depression, particularly in relation to male depression. Uh, what would a male support group look like? I mean, how, how to go about it, um, setting it up, what to do. So, great idea, a great idea. And I am, I'm pleased to, to, to say that, uh, that that is beginning now. There are groups that are beginning to. It, it, it takes one person just to start the process. You invite a few friends and another few, you know, few friends. Uh, but a, a pastor in a church could, could initiate that. But uh, it, it works best in, uh, uh, in a sort of localized area. You know, buddies in the same, golfing buddies. Or buddies who, usually there are groups of men in churches that have a common interest. And, and uh, it, it, it's, it, to have some homogeneity is helpful. Uh, because you have similar experiences so as you begin to share. And, and the, the, the second thing is, is then to begin uh, the process of sharing, just opening up. And this is a tough one. And this is where whoever decides to lead it needs to be willing to do that. It needs to be someone who has experienced depression and is uh, uh, willing to, 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 to share about it. Um, surprisingly, men are open to this. You, I wouldn't have said that five years ago. I wouldn't have said that ten years ago. 
But my, I'm judging from my own sons-in-law and, and their level of openness, uh, that they are, they, they, this is something they are open to. They would be willing to, 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 to share about it. Um, I think more than that, there's not much to Thank you. Um, does nutritional therapy and nutrition generally have a significant part to play in recovery and health? Well, you know, there's no doubt about it that nutrition is important. It, it is uh, it, you know, it's as important as exercise and, and everything else. I am somewhat concerned, however, when the nutritional focus is used to block the access to other... In other words, the idea that you can fix your depression if you just go and eat the right diet. Uh, is a concern to me. Now, um, like so many things, if you, if you eat the right diet and then you also do your relaxation and you exercise, yeah, in the long run, you can deal with your depression. I, there's no doubt about that. Uh, it is true that certain nutritional deficiencies will aggravate the problem. And so I, 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 I try to, to, you know, I, I take balanced vitamins and supplements and and all of that, and I do it on a regular basis uh, because uh, that's important. But uh, so I'm, I'm saying yes, it is important. But if it is that school of thought that says that that is the only way to go, then I have concerns because there is um, uh, there are more serious disorders than uh, present today than can just be fixed by a change in in, in nutritional. But that is not to say that that is not important. And I mention this because there are groups out there where they recruit people to sell their products. And I get approached by them all the time. You know, I'm, 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 this is one product. It's absolutely fabulous. Turns out, of course, they're one of, the, uh, one of them disciples, you know, and then they get a commission on everything they sell. And then, then, and then they send me samples and they want me to endorse it. Um, now, the product they, they, they're promoting is probably very good. But it's the, the mindset that you do this and you don't do the other. Mm -hmm. That, you've got, you got problems with me with that one. <laughs> um, how do we know when grief has been dealt with fully, when, it, when it's complete? There, there is some grief that never ends. Particularly in bereavement. You, you can expect and should welcome. If someone in your life really did mean something, their passing is a pain that never, ever passes. You just... There, there, there are some losses, you, you know, there's a time, three hours, four hours, ten hours. If, if, if you are five years later still grieving... Got it, having got fired, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. The, the typical rule is that there should be no loss so severe that should continue to have a serious impact in your life longer than one year. Some would say six months. The exception being in bereavement. But even in bereavement, the grief is over, but the sadness the, the, the awareness of the loss never goes away. 
and nor should it. So let me give you a good, good suggestion. I use Christmas to do my grieving for all the sad things in my life. In other words, maybe on the anniversary of a wedding, uh, a deceased a spouse that's deceased, the, 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 the living spouse should set that side a day for a day of grieving and then get up and go the next day. In other words, it's just take one day a year when you do that grieving rather than trying to fight it. I use Christmas Day, and I've taught my family this. I, 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 very early in my life, I couldn't figure out, once I was an adult, couldn't figure out why Christmas was always a sad day for me. I do not enjoy Christmas Day. I never used to enjoy it. Thanks, Ralph. He understands. <laughs> Ralph's cheering me on at the back there. You know, I... It... It brings back all my childhood memories that weren't necessarily happy ones. It's when I sort of think about my mother and my father and all the losses. All, it, it's, Christmas Day seems to drag up for me all of that. So now what we do in my family, I'm not exaggerating, but we set aside Christmas Day as our day of grief. My son-in-law who died... In that accident 12 years ago, on Christmas Day, we remember him. So we, we give ourselves one day to all being sad, and it's okay. okay. We celebrate Christ's birth, but we grieve our losses. And I tell you, by the end of the day, we're having fun. We're having a ball. So instead of fighting it, we acknowledge... Now... So setting aside, and, and this is with my daughter also, as her grief went on, uh, she only grieved, only every second day was she doing it, and then once a week, and then once a month. Uh, and so, but you never really ever lose it. It's, it's one of those, it's, it's asymptotic, if you know what that means. It's going less, 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 and it'll go on for eternity, but never really quite reaches zero. It's called asymptotic. But below a certain point, it should no longer be dominant in your life or controlling your life. Make sense? Yeah. 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 So, so can I ask... Th that, that's worth uh, 300 bucks, by the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> that so, session would be worth... So yeah. when you say on Christmas Day, you know, you spend that time grieving, uh, you, you simply mean you... you I, talk, I mean, you, you I, talk, I, I bring back... I, I, we talk about it. You talk, we reminisce yeah. about it. We yeah. talk about Richard and how... And my grandsons are there, and I, 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 I share stories about, you know, uh, things that happened with Richard. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an opportunity to get it out in the open and, and remember. That's what I mean by grieving. Because that's what grieving is all about, you see. It's, that's what it's all about. Um, there were some questions here, or well, quite, a, quite a, a little number, and this might take us through to the end, on sleep. Um, ah, good. That's a good if, if stress causes insomnia, but sleep helps to deal with stress, how, how do we break the cycle? Oh, it's time I left. <laughs> You're getting too smart now, man. <laughs> you know, it, it is a... 
It is a vicious circle, no doubt about it. Um, say it again to make sure I understand the question. Well, if, if, uh, if stress causes insomnia, um, uh, if, but, if but, but sleep causes... helps to, to deal with the stress, yes. how do you get out of the cycle? Yes. And, 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 you, and you, you break out the cycle by slowly, slowly changing the cycle. So if I sleep a little bit more, I'll get a little bit more, less stress so I can sleep a little more. It, I, I, I'm serious when I say that. It's a good question. And, and, and it, is a, it, it is a process. You know, how do I, if exercise is good for me and I will feel better, but I feel so lousy because I haven't been exercised, how, how do I get to the other? Well, I, when I, like I've been away this week, I haven't been able to get my exercise done. So when I get back, Monday evening, Tuesday morning, I'm going to wake up and I will look at my walk, walking machine and, and, and I, I will have no... I'll feel so tired. I don't want to get on that thing. So, but what I will do is I'll get on it and I'll do just a little bit of, of walking. Right? And that helps me a little bit to bring my energy back. And the next day, I'll do a little bit more. And after three or four days, I will have my energy back and I'll be doing my full exercise regime again. It, it is a slow process of beginning to shift the, the balance or, another matter, widen the circle. And so it, this is keeping me trapped here and have very slow. You cannot go from sleeping five hours a night to sleeping nine hours a night the next day. I'm not exaggerating. It could take you six months to go from five hours to nine hours. But you, you, the strategy is to add 10 minutes, 15 minutes to your sleep each day a little bit. Imperceptibly. Just stay in bed another 10 minutes. And after a few days, your body gets the message you can sleep a little more, a few more 10 minutes. And, yeah. and so on now. I'll have a few more things to say in my next session on okay. sleep. But that, that's a good question. Um, and, and related to this, I think, can, can you get your sleep quotient, I mean, I think they're thinking about the nine hours, yes. in, in more than one sitting or, okay. li or lying, All I right. suppose. So <laughs> why don't I share that bit of it's the, the question raised? Let me share it right now, and then I don't have to deal with okay. it this afternoon. And, and for this, I've got to stand because I'm back to lecturing. <laughs> Answering questions, I can sit down. Yeah. But when I lecture, I've got to stand up. Um, let me give you a crash course in sleep architecture, it's called. We sleep in one and a half hour cycles. At the end of each one and a half hour, about that, it varies a little bit, you know, but generally speaking. At the end of one and a half hours, we wake up, and for most of us, we will go right back to sleep again. If you're watching a sleep video, do a video of people sleeping, you'll see that's the point at which they turn over, take a new position. You, hardly, you don't even know you've woken up, you turn over. After about three of those cycles, your adrenaline has had enough rest, and if you have to get up to go potty or something like that, your adrenaline gets a kick in, kicks in, and now you are really awake, and you now try to go and you can't get back to sleep again. So, so, so the, the, the problem is that you, have, you really have to sleep longer than your adrenaline needs are for other reasons. But 
the nine hours, which is six cycles of sleep that is recommended for a normal adult, does not have to be slept in one continuous period. The Commission on Sleep introduced the concept of a a sleep bank. When you sleep, you're making deposits. When you're awake, you're making withdrawals. I love love that metaphor. This is a very good one. You're making deposits, you're making withdrawals. You have seven days. Now, why, how they come up with seven, I don't know. That's the, a biblical period, right? Maybe, maybe there were lots of Jews on the, on the committee, you know, and for them, Sabbath and... Anyway, they, they've said you have up to seven days to make up the, any overdraft at the sleep bank. So, you know, I... I Last night, let's say, I, I was woken up the earliest hour of the morning because the train is close by and I didn't, couldn't go back to sleep. So I only got six hours of sleep. So I'm overdraft by? Three hours. I've got an overdraft of three hours. How long do I have to make up those three hours? That commission said you have seven days. So, tomorrow afternoon after I've preached and I've had lunch with Rick and, and Lulu, uh, I'm going to go back to the hotel, say, and I'm going to plan on adding three hours of sleep. That, that's, that's the concept. You can make up for it. A mother who has a, is feeding a baby is going to have a very disrupted sleep and may have to have sleep cycle, put in a one and a half an hour sleep cycle all through the day to make up the, the requirement. But, but you, have, you can do that. You can break sleep six hours at night, then in the afternoon, or uh, teenagers typically will have short out my teenagers every night of the week but come Saturday you cannot get them out of bed until, until 5 o'clock in the afternoon it used to drive my daughter crazy because she was you know, a single mother now with her, her husband gone and uh, there's chores to be done and uh, dad I've got to get those kids up they've got to help me I said oh, honey you know what they're making up their overdraft now the accumulative effect of an overdraft is the penalty to be paid. You pay the piper. You pay the piper later in quality of life, in possible stress disorders, etc., etc., etc. Now, one last thing and then we'll take up right. There's a difference between a sleep and a nap. Some of you are having a nap right now. I can see you. <laughs> Some of you have been having naps all through my presentations. <clears throat> and uh, the difference between a sleep, a nap, and a sleep. A sleep is a full sleep cycle. So Winston Churchill, I don't know how he figured this out, but during the Second World War, he would sleep one and a half hours every afternoon. In fact, he advocated that you actually put on your pajamas when you do it and get into bed. He was serious. In other words, it has to be a sleep. A sleep is a complete cycle. The cycle ends with your dreaming. And straight after the break, I want to say a little bit about dream. Because we, uh, dreams play a very important role in stress and, 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 and stress management. So it, 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 you dream and then you wake up. You, you, you always wake up straight after a dream. 
So you may not remember it, you may not even know that what you dream is not important. Your brain is dreaming, we know that from electroencephalography. So you can add, if you, if, you, if you want to do three hours, fine. Now, a nap is maybe 20 minutes. So when I, I teach, uh, I still teach at Fuller, and I, may, I teach psychopharmacology, and then I teach a, a, a testing uh, class for a certain psychological test, and the class, uh, classes are about one hour apart. That gives me enough time to go to my office, shut my door, I, I have a couch in my office, and I lie down and I take a 20-minute nap. And a nap is also important, but the, the, what a nap does is it helps to lower your adrenaline. I use the, when I go and take a nap, my adrenaline's been climbing up. When I teach you, my adrenaline gets high. I go and I lie down 20 minutes and my adrenaline plummets like that as it comes down. I can feel it. And, 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 I, that, and I, that's why to know relaxation exercise is so beneficial because I do 20 minutes of relaxation. Now, at the end of that, I feel like I don't want to get up. It can actually, if you're an adrenaline addict, it, you can actually feel lousy after a nap. And so many people say, I can't take a nap because if I take a nap, I, then, then I really feel bad. Yes, of course you do. That's a good sign. You follow? And then I get up and my adrenaline is now reset at a low level. I've conserved my adrenaline because it's all about conserving it. When I cut it down to get it, save it, it's only tiny little glands. I don't have a lot of resource. And then I'm ready for my next class, you see. Um, and so a nap is uh, an adrenaline reliever, reducer. Very effective for stress management but it's not sleep. It doesn't count to sleep. Unless you complete the sleep cycle, that period, all you've had is a nap. Now, that's not bad, but you have to be aware that that little extra step of trying to get uh, sleep. And now, one very last thing. Try not to wake up with an alarm clock. (laughs) If you... Now, I set an alarm clock as a backup. But if I'm waking up by an alarm clock, it's telling me I've got to get to bed earlier. If an alarm clock goes up during your dream cycle, the next day is shot. It disrupts what's going on in the dream cycle. And what goes on in the dream cycle is extremely important, but you're going to have to wait until after lunch to hear about it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was brilliant. So helpful. Can I just remind you, you can get recordings of this session and indeed all the sessions by, you know, filling out that form that Debbie was talking about and leaving it.